off of hope. Things are not what we see with our eye, but things truly are what's in our heart. And we thank you, Father, for intervening and guiding and moving us and turning our hearts and our minds to you. This this morning, we're about to take and open your word. May we find something fresh in it for us, that we might be renewed in your spirit. We speak it all in the name of Jesus Christ today. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Vince. First Peter is where we will be this morning. We're going to be in chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 13, and we're going to work all the way through uh, verse 18. Uh, Adoniram Judson is a name you need to know. Uh, he was the first Baptist foreign missionary, but his story is one that's pretty interesting. When he set sail, he was not Baptist, um, but he read his Bible on the boat. This was before airplanes, uh, so it was a while back, Vince's childhood. Set sail, starts reading scripture, uh, recognizes that uh, the Bible teaches that baptism should be by immersion, and so he uh, left the denomination he set sail with that was supporting him on his missionary journey, made landfall. He was baptized by a Baptist pastor in England, and he wrote two letters. He wrote, run to the church that sent him, saying, I'm no longer with you guys. I don't believe the way you do. And then he wrote a letter to the Baptist saying that if you will support me, I will be your representative uh, over, and he ended up in Burma. And that's where the International Mission Board kind of got its start. Uh, where the first group of Baptists came together to support a foreign missionary. So he went to Burma. He was brilliant, very smart at language. And so Adoniram's first task was he uh, translated the Bible into Burmese so that the people he was ministering to could read it in their own language. And while he was doing that, he also lived like these people lived. He, he built a little hut, and he kind of engaged in some of the cultural things that they were doing. He learned their language so that he could share the gospel with them, and he translated the Bible in their language. He learned how to uh, adapt to their culture, to tear down unnecessary bridges and hurdles and walls so that he could share the gospel with them in ways that would unhinder them. He would uh, put together English to Burmese dictionaries. He put together theological tracts, devotional literature, all of these things, both in English and Burmese for all of these people, and in fact, much of the work that he did as the first Baptist missionary still sets the tone for how the IMB trains missionaries to go out now. You learn the people's language, you work on translation, still a huge issue, translating the Bible into the native languages and engaging in culture the way that he did. Because of his life, because of his commitment, because of uh, all of the things that he did, there's untold hundreds of thousands of people in these little tribes in Burma that were saved. Now, if I left the story there, you would think that his life was easy. All right, it was challenging. He had to leave the comfort of America to go be a missionary, but by and large, we would just if I left the story there, you would think that that was the biggest issue he had. He left the discomforts of America, settled in in Burma, and then just kind of lived out a good life there. But what if I told you that Adoniram's wife, when he left and was a missionary, ended up dying on the mission field? He lost three children on the mission field when he took his, his family there. He remarries, and then a war breaks out between Burma and England, and so he is captured and imprisoned because they, Burma captured all the Western people and put them in a prison. 
He was there for 19 months, and the only reason he was kept alive is because his wife was good at sweet-talking the guards, and she talked the guards into letting her take him food. The guards at this time were not good guards. They were guards who were on death row, and instead of killing him, they committed to be the guards over these prisons for the Burmese people. So they weren't very kind. Adoniram's wife did all of that while she was nursing a baby and had adopted two Burmese kids whose parents had either abandoned them or had been imprisoned also. So 19 months later, when he gets out of prison, that wife who had been caring for him that whole time passes away, and the daughter that she was nursing passed away too. So that's four kids and two wives that he's lost on the mission field. And this sends him into a fit of grief. He moves into the tiger-infested jungle, lives in a hut. He digs his own grave and just kind of sits around mulling his life in death for a season. When he comes out of that season of grief, uh, he has this evangelistic flair to him that just never really was quenched the rest of his life. He had this commitment and this compassion for these Burmese people that he just goes off sharing the gospel with them in their language. He marries again. He keeps working. However, he ends up getting sick. And so the doctor tells him, and he says, what you need to do to to maintain your life and to come back to here is you need to get on a boat and go sail for a while and kind of get out of the climate so that you can come back healthy and continue sharing the gospel with these Burmese people. And it was on that boat in 1850 when he died, buried at sea. I tell you the story of Adoniram Judson, one, because he's somebody that that we, we need to know. But two, because... There is this idea within Christianity, and it's a huge misunderstanding of the struggles of Christianity. And there's this idea that, that plants into our lives that, that if we do the right things, if we live the right way, if we say the right prayers, if we read the Bible enough or deep enough, if we have the right morals, if we have the right values, if we teach our kids the right morals, if we teach them the right values, if we make sure that the gospel is central in our life, then God is going to keep our lives free from struggle and free from pain. That's a lie. You might be thinking, I don't believe that, and, and, and maybe you don't, but I would venture to say that it probably has infiltrated your and my life more than we recognize. If we get a flat tire, or the washing machine goes out, or the kids get sick, or work is frustrating, or spouse irritates you, or, or you're at kindergarten basketball games just screaming your mind out. That was just, that was just this weekend for us. <laughs> What does your heart do? What does your mind do in those moments? Does your mind go, well, it's just the devil attacking me today, but not today, Satan. And so you force yourself to smile, hoping that maybe the rest of your body will catch up. Is it, well, God doesn't want me to struggle uh, like this, so either God isn't powerful enough to stop this, God doesn't know what's going on, he can't see me, or God doesn't care, he's not kind enough to me to take these away. Or is it, God doesn't want me to be unhappy, so I'm going to get a new whatever that's broken. I'll go into debt over my head if I have to, but happiness costs a price and comfort costs a price, and the Lord will take care of me to have this blessed life to get all these things that I want. Why don't you and I spend the remainder of our time together looking to see how Peter would answer that question? This is 1 Peter 3, verses 13 through 18. Who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good. 
But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are. Do not fear what they fear or be intimidated. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good than it should be to, uh, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for the sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Let's pray and we'll dive in. Father, we thank you for today. I thank you that we do get to gather together. God, I thank you that we can sing songs that don't exalt our lives, that don't exalt our abilities, that that rather, God, draw our hearts, our minds, our eyes up to you. That remind us that you're the source that we need. God, I pray as we walk through this passage of Scripture, which is not a difficult passage you've given us to understand, it's just a difficult passage to live out that you would encourage us, that you would convict us, that you would grow us in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, verse, uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. Who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. I heard a pastor one time, a pastor one time preach a message... Um, th- this particular pastor had rejected some major like Christian ideas, like that Jesus had died to atone for the sins of man. So I say, pastor, not to like belittle him. I just don't think he was a Christian pastor. And, and so uh, I heard this message he gave, and the message was on he did how Jesus didn't really die to atone for the sins of man. That God basically accepts you as you are. So if you're a good person, you should just be a good person. And then in the end, it kind of all works out in the end. Sin's not that bad. God's not going to punish it like we think it is. And when I heard this message by this particular man, it just so happened to be Holy Week, which is the week leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus, the, the week leading up to Easter on Sunday morning. And so his explanation of why Jesus died was, and I quote, because sometimes good people who are doing good things are treated badly by people who don't understand them. And sometimes they're treated so badly that they're killed. Is that what Peter's saying here? When he says, who will harm you if you're devoted to what is good? See, the the question Peter is asking is implied with an answer. Who will harm you? And the implied answer is no one. It's like when Morgan asks me, do your shoes go here? I know the answer is no, even though she's asking a question. It's implied. I'm just, I forget where my shoes are supposed to go. What Peter is saying is if you're devoted to what is good, then in all likelihood you probably won't be harmed or persecuted. However... Uh, this goodness that Peter is talking about, he's talked about throughout the whole letter of First Peter, especially First Peter two twelve, which I want to read again with you. It says this, Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day that he has visited. So much of the rest of First Peter is really... Peter fleshing out that verse in particular ways, right? The, the truth is that we're, sometimes we're committed to good and harm still happens. Does it mean that God is, is weak and he can't stop it? No. 
Does it mean that God is blind to our struggles and our harm and he just doesn't see what's going on? No. Does it mean that God is not caring about the things that we do? He's not coming to our rescue? No. What is it? Well, Peter tells us that if we suffer for righteousness, we are blessed. If we suffer, uh, if, if harm comes to us because we're devoted, we're zealous for good, we're blessed. What Peter is saying is God is strong enough to stop it. But he sees you and he allows it. That he loves you and he cares for you and that he doesn't pull you out of it shouldn't cause you to worry or be frustrated. It should cause you to stop and ask, well, why is the Lord sending me through this? And what you will find is that harm and struggles, the things that knock us out of our rhythm, the things that shake us to our foundation, the things that can frustrate us, the things that can cause us to lose patience, the things that can just make our blood boil, are the things that God uses to reveal areas in our life where we're not being gospel-centered. I found myself asking more times over the last year than I can remember, why am I so quick to get angry over such dumb things? Brothers and sisters, the odds of you and I facing persecution like Adoniram Judson faced, like the Elliots we talked about last week faced, is, is very, very small. We might, but probably not. But what you and I face is this wearing down of our comforts that tends to happen. There is a hope in suffering because it reminds us of what's the most important and what's the least important. There's this hope in suffering that it will cause us to be drawn out of our pride, thinking I deserve this, or my kids deserve this, or my grandkids deserve this, and it draws us out of our selfishness, and it places us before Jesus with a right understanding of ourselves and a right understanding of Christ. What a blessing that is. A blessing doesn't mean that God's going to fill your pocketbook and give you more of whatever it is that you're wanting in life. To be free from having to fight for and over every single little thing in your life, understanding that God is orchestrating these things, that God is for you, is freeing. What a blessing it is to not have to boo the refs at a kindergarten basketball game because we know who Jesus is. Verse 14, the second half. Do not fear what they fear or be intimidated. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Think about the people Peter is writing to. Think about Peter himself. They're facing social persecution at this moment when Peter is pinning this letter to them. There's not persecution from a government yet. It's, it's coming, right? But right now the harm is, I don't want my kids to play with your kids because you're Christian and we're not Christian, so let's just keep that separate. That's the kind of struggles that they're facing. We don't serve your kind around here kind of persecution. And so from a humanly and a worldly place of thought, I would think that if Peter is addressing this group of people who are about to suffer and are suffering, that he would say things different than what he says in the text. From a worldly perspective, we would think Peter would say, if you're going to live like a Christian and you don't want to face suffering, here's what you should do. Don't talk about Jesus in a public place. If God wants you to talk about him, he'll open a door so wide that you'll know. Uh, always preface your conversations with, uh, about Jesus with, well, I know this is what I believe, but you're free to believe whatever you want. But we can keep going making up these rules, but at the end of the day, that's not what Peter tells these people to do. They're very likely to be killed for their faith, and Peter does not tell them to back down and stop talking. 
In fact, Peter tells them that God is good. That God is all-powerful and that God is all-knowing and that he loves them and that he cares for them. But God isn't safe. He's holy. And he will not be controlled by anyone. And so what Peter is saying is he's saying, don't fear them. Don't be intimidated by them. And he's quoting the Old Testament. It's Isaiah 8, 13. This is when the kingdom of Israel had split. You have the northern kingdom, Israel. You have the southern kingdom, Judah. And you have King Ahaz who has to decide who he's going to ally with. And so Isaiah tells King Ahaz, do not fear the Assyrians. That's who he's talking about. They have a mighty kingdom. They have a mighty army. They can do all these things. Don't fear them. Fear God. And so Peter takes that and he quotes it here saying, don't fear these people who are bringing this persecution against you and the things that they're going to say about you and what they're telling you. Why? You don't fear them because God is holy, which means God is distinct. God is set apart. Peter, knowing full well that persecution is going to happen and is going to come under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells these people not to fear, but rather be holy. Do you catch the difference? Don't fear these people. The opposite of that is not be brave. It's fear God. Don't fear them, fear God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16 says this, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, but as the one who called you is holy... You are to be holy in all your conduct, for it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. First, uh, Peter tells us here to regard Christ as holy within our hearts. This persecution's coming, and Peter doesn't say, Run. He doesn't say, Bunker up. He doesn't say, Stand and fight. What he says is, You be holy when they come. And you be holy because you regard Christ as holy when they come. Don't recluse away. Don't conform to the world. You be in the world, but not of the world. You be holy because Christ is holy. He says, and you can give a defense to anyone who asks you for the hope that is in you. So what is this hope that Peter is hedging so much on? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3-6 through 6 says this, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because of His great mercy He has given us new birth into a living Hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, it is necess- if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. This whole letter Peter's been writing about has been centralized on this idea of a living hope. That even when life isn't what we want it to be, we live in such a way that shows that we're exiles here, that we belong to a king who rules a kingdom that nothing can destroy. The hope that you and I have is the gospel of Jesus. He lived the life that you and I should have lived. He died the death that you and I deserved. He credits to believers his righteousness. So our biggest issue that we carry in life is not all these secondary little things that are outside of us. It's this massive internal issue that our hearts are sinful and separated from an eternal and holy God. That God tells us to be holy and we can't be holy. God tells us to be righteous and we cannot be righteous in and of our own work. That instead... Jesus dies in our place on the cross, taking our sin, 
crediting to us, imputing us his righteousness so that now we can be counted as holy. Not because of how great we are, but because of how good the Lord is. We can be counted as righteous, not because we are righteous, but because Christ is. Jesus in my place is the gospel, and so he atones for the sin of mankind on the cross, and the resurrection proves it. So what Peter is saying is this hope that we have is not a dead hope. It's not a, I hope the Rockies are going to win the World Series. They're not going to. It's a hope that Jesus is not dead at this moment. It's a living hope. It's a hope that shows us that Jesus defeated sin and death. And that he rules and he reigns right now. And the hope, that hope, that gospel changes how we live. And so what that means is if we have that living hope dwelling inside of us, we're the best citizens that we can be, not because uh, we're, we just that's something we value. We're the best citizens that we can be because of the glory of God is what we're trying. We use our citizenship in, in America and Texas for the glory of the Lord. We're the best employees and employers that we can be. We use our work, we use our careers for the glory of the Lord. We're the best spouses. We have the best we work hard on our marriages, not because marriage is what's going but we want to use our marriages for the glory of the Lord. There is a selfishness, a selflessness that's supposed to mark Christians. Because our hope isn't in a perfect America, a perfect career, or a perfect spouse. Our hope is in a perfect Savior, Jesus Christ. And so Peter tells these people who will be harmed and who will be persecuted that when they come, don't fight them. Tell them why you will not stop believing in the living hope that you have. Live a life that makes them see that no matter what they do to you, no matter what they try to, I mean, the worst they can do is kill us, and then we were the Lord. No matter what they do, it cannot shake us from the living hope that Jesus Christ gives. And then share that hope with them. So if we walk out these doors and someone notices something about you and says, why are you so happy today? What the text tells us is we should be prepared to tell them about the living hope that we have. What is the reason for our hope? Is it the right reason? And then share it. Verse 16. Yet do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that when you are accused... Those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. The story of Job is one of my favorite in in the Bible. Uh, Much of the story of Job, if you grew up in in church, we we know the story, right? Satan goes to God and says, you have this servant that I want to tempt, which just that part right there should make us feel a lot at ease about who Satan is and his role in our life. He can't do anything without permission from God. He is a wounded dog on a leash. He may bite you if you get close, but the Lord has him tight. Everything we know about, like the the stories, right, where where Satan goes and he tempts Job and then he comes back to God and they have that kind of interplay and he ends up taking just about everything he could possibly think of from Job, his wealth, his family, his health, all of the things from Job and Job won't recount him. It takes place in the first two chapters of that book. Job is 42 chapters long. 
So what is happening in the rest of the chapters of Job? Well, it's the story of, of Job's friends coming and giving him bad advice. And it's this conversations that he has with them. And it's Job talking to his wife. And they tell Job, curse God and die. What kind of God would treat you this way? And Job, to his credit, doesn't ever denounce Christ. But, but to Job's downfall, he questions God. And I love the book because he, he questions God. He's like, God, come and talk to me. He's basically like, you owe me an explanation. And so guess what? God shows up. I want to just read to you. I won't read to you all of it because it, it's long, but I want to just read to you some of what the Lord says to Job on why Job is suffering. This is Job chapter 38, 42, 38 is where we get uh, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. And he said, Who is this who obscures my counsel with ignorant words? Get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you, you will inform me. Where were you when I established the earth? You hear what he's saying? Where were you, Job, when I breathed and all of creation started? Tell me if you understand. Who, who fixed its dimensions? And, and certainly you know. Who stretched out a measuring line across it? What supports its foundations? Or, or who laid its cornerstones while the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy? Who enclosed the sea behind a door when it burst from its womb? And uh, when I made the clouds its garment and total darkness its blanket? When I determined its boundaries and put its bars and doors in place? When I declared you may come this far but no further, you proud waves stop here. Have you ever in, in your life commanded the morning or assigned the dawn its place so that you may seize the edges of the earth and, and shake the wicked out? The earth is changed as a clay is by a seal. Its hills are, uh, stand out like the folds of a garment. Light is withheld from the wicked and the arm raised in violence to the broken. Have you traveled the sources of the seas or walked in the depths of the oceans? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Have you seen the gates of the deep darkness? Have you comprehended the extent of the earth? Tell me if you know these things. We're, we're going to stop there, but I could go on because just the Lord just beats Job into submission. But did you hear what he answers? Job's asking why. Why am I suffering? Why am I suffering? Why am I suffering? And God shows up and says, this is who I am and you're not me. Where were you when I breathed and creation was started? Have you uh, helped lay the dimensions of the earth, Job? Are you the one who tells the waves to stop and they listen to you and they obey? Have you commanded the sun to rise and it rise? Have you set the dew on the earth, Job? Have you been to the bottom of the ocean? Have you seen what's going on down there? There's some weird looking fish. Have you seen the gates of death, Job? Do you know what's going on? Do you understand everything about the earth? And Job's reply is, no. It's such an important thing for you and I to understand because when harm happens to us, when suffering comes, when things don't go the way we want them to go, the first question we always tend to ask is why? And what the Bible repeatedly and emphatically says over and over is why is the wrong question? The question should be, do you trust the Lord? God doesn't give Job the why. He gives Job the who. He says, you're not going to understand all of these things that are taking place. God doesn't say, well, you see, Satan came to me and I thought you were strong enough, Job, and so I gave you these temptations. Instead, God says, I'm God and you're Job. You can trust me even when you don't understand what's going on. 
that what's happening is not an accident, that it is for your good, and it's for God's glory. And so then we come to Peter, and we realize Peter's understanding of harm and suffering that will come, and and inspired by the Holy Spirit, by God, tells these people in the midst of all of these rough things that are going to happen to them, Peter tells them, be gentle and and kind. Be be respectful to those that are going to do these things to you. That's not what we want to hear as Texans, isn't it? We want to hear punch and ask questions later. And instead, God says, no, 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 no. You, you be ready to give a defense to anyone who wants to hear the reason for this hope, yet do it with kindness and respect. With, with gentleness, with, with meekness, with a conscience that's clear. Sin loves darkness. It's where it thrives. That's why so much of the Christian method message is repent and turn from your sin because that brings sin into light. And when sin is exposed to light, it can't dwell in the darkness anymore. It's freeing. It hurts, but it's freeing. Because when our conscience is clear before the Lord and before our brothers and sisters in Christ, then somebody comes and wants to accuse us of something. What do they have? They're going to call us all the names we already know that we are. They'll come and say, you hypocrites. And we'll say, yes. And you are welcome to join us. They'll come and say, you look down on it. They'll come and say whatever they want to say about us. And we'll understand that those things may be true. But we've repented of those sins. We've turned them. We're here not because we have it all together. We're here because we're sick and we know we need the physician. Not because we're healthy and we've got life figured out. So it's better for us to suffer doing good than to earn suffering, is what uh, uh, Peter is saying. Be kind. Be respectful. Have a clear conscience. If you suffer, make sure it's suffering for doing good, not suffering that's deserved because you've been a jerk to somebody else. Let the gospel shine through your life in such a way that they have nothing evil, nothing wrong, nothing to say other than if they bring any accusation, they would be ashamed because everybody else is going to go, we know them. That's not who they are. And it's not shaming somebody who brings these accusations against us so that we can be like, yeah, take that, atheists. It's shaming in such a way that it causes them to question the very core of who they are. It causes them to question what they're lying, what they're arguing about against Christians so that when they're brought to shame, we have an opportunity to give them the hope that we have. Verse 18. For Christ also suffered for the sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God, that he, uh, he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. This sounds impossible because it is. God in the flesh, right? Jesus in the flesh, the creator of all things, immortal and invincible God makes himself mortal for you and I. Able to die because of his great love for us. He suffered for sin that he never committed. 
and he suffers once for all. You know the Old Testament stories. The priests used to have to take the lambs or the goats or the rams or, or whatever and sacrifice over and over and over. Just in the Passover season, there would have been thousands of, of sheep, of rams, of goats, of bulls that would have been slaughtered in Jerusalem. The streets would have ran red with blood, and it would have stank. I mean, it would have just been a disgusting smell that would hover over the city as the blood just continued to pour out and continued to rot. And so when here we're told Jesus died once for all, imagine how freeing that would be. To recognize you don't have to go get your best stock show animal and sacrifice it for no money every year. That we look at it and we go, he is the truly perfect, spotless lamb of God. And when he sacrifices himself, his death atones for our sin perfectly, completely, and fully. That we don't continually sacrifice animals anymore. Instead, we remember the gospel, the cross of Christ. That he is the Lamb of God who died once for all. So that he can bring us to God. We cannot be good enough. We cannot be smart enough. We cannot be hard-working enough to get to God. Instead, God comes to us and makes a way for us to be with God. Why? Because God is all-powerful, and he's defeated sin and death. Because God is all-knowing, that he knows the depths of our depravity. He knows the sin that he paid for completely and fully. He's not looking at my life going, I didn't know that sin, Ben, or I would not have died. He knows us completely and fully, thoroughly. He knows all of us better than we know ourselves. He knows what it's going to cost him. It's more than a physical death. God the Father's wrath was poured on Jesus Christ the Son, not because he did anything wrong, because it was the only way for us to be with God. He knows the cost of that. He sweats blood in the garden before he's crucified because he knows the anguish and the agony that's going to come. Why would God do this? Because he is an all-loving and all-caring God who makes himself, he wants to make us like him. He died so that we can be like Christ because that's what's best for us. He takes our place. He shows us his love for us, not by just wiping over our sins and pretending like they didn't happen, but actually paying for the price and the cost of them. He maintains his justice, he maintains his righteousness, while at the same time lavishing grace and lavishing mercy on you and I when we absolutely deserve none of it. What an amazing Savior. We won't put our shopping carts in the rack at Walmart in the parking lot. Yet God sacrifices himself for us. A willingness to die for the sinfulness of humanity so that we can be with God. There is no other way. The immortal God makes himself mortal so that you and I can be saved. And we receive this grace and we receive this mercy through faith in Jesus Christ. Not faith plus something. It's not grace plus something. It's grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone for the glory of God alone. The righteous died for the unrighteous. The holy died for the unholy. So that the unrighteous could be made righteous by God. So that the unholy could be made holy for God.
What an amazing Savior. Let us worship him. Let's pray. God, we thank you that we get to come to you today and just worship the glory of the cross. God, help us to recognize, help us to understand your gospel. That the suffering that comes, that the harm that comes. God, that when life doesn't go the way that we want life to go, it's not because you're not powerful enough. It's not because you don't know what's going on. And it's not because you don't love us. But God, it comes because you are powerful, because you know us, and because you love us. That so much of those hard things, so much of those struggles, so much of those inconveniences and comforts and harm and persecution that comes is meant to drive the pride and drive the sin out of our hearts. Help us to recognize that this morning and to grow in you. God, for the believers that are here, I pray that you would help us to grow in Jesus. That we would repent of the sins that we have. That we would apologize to whoever we need to apologize for. That we would seek reconciliation with one another. For your glory, for our good. God, for any unbelievers who might be here this morning, I pray that you would help them to hear this message and recognize, God, that their works cannot earn them a way to heaven. God, the only chance, the only hope they have to be saved, the only way that they can have any meaning in life, any, anything that is lasting, is by repenting of their sin and turning to you in belief. Placing their faith in you, Jesus, and in you alone. So I pray, God, any unbelievers who are here, that you would work in their hearts that this gospel would be made clear. God, gospel means good news, and it is good news, but it's only good news when we understand the bad news that we're coming from. Help us to magnify you this morning as our worship continues. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's sing a little song that you're going to be familiar with. It says, I have decided to follow Jesus. 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 No turning back. No turning back. The world behind me, the world behind me, the cross before me, cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me, the world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back, no turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back, 
No turning back. Sing it with me one more time. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. You may have your